Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Yusha Patel. You're most welcome, sir. Wonderful to be here, Haji Paul. Thank you very much. You notice. Um, Dr. Patel is uh, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Lafayette College, a liberal arts college located in Pennsylvania, USA. His scholarship uh, explores Islamic scripture and tradition with a focus on how Islam has shaped and been shaped by Muslim interfaith encounters in the Middle East and beyond. Professor Patel earned his PhD in Religious Studies at, from Duke University. This fall, this autumn, as we say in England, um, he will be the Abdul Aziz Al Mutawa Visiting Fellow at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies at the University of Oxford. Today, uh, Professor Patel will be giving us a presentation based on his recently published book, The Muslim Difference, which, by the way, I will link to in the description below if you want to read it, which discusses Muslims imitating non-Muslims. And I'm reminded of the famous hadith, uh, where the prophet upon whom be peace says, whoever imitates a people becomes one of them. And Dr. Patel will be discussing the Sunni Islamic doctrine of Tashabu. Hope I've not mispronounced that too badly. Um, an Islamic term normally, but not always, uh, which connotes a reprehensible type of Muslim imitation, which the ulama commonly invoke to draw a line between Muslims and non-Muslims in public life. And the presentation will explore the Islamic scriptural and historical foundations for the doctrine and how ulama, the Islamic scholars, have interpreted it. So over to you, sir. Thank you, uh, Paul. It's my great pleasure to be here. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillahil kareem wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een. So I'm really happy at this opportunity. I've admired this blog for, for some time now, um, especially since joining Twitter um, and uh, seeing all the, the opportunities and exposure that scholars around the world um, that you've been that you've been giving them, which is I think a great uh, a great service uh, to the, to the Ummah. So it's my great pleasure to be here. Um, what I want to do first, um, by way of introduction to this topic, is, is to share with uh, our viewers um, a small anecdote about how I actually became interested in this subject. Which I think is very, you know, it's always been interested me um, as a scholar, as a student, how people become invested in their research, which often, uh, you know, people spend decades of studying. How does that become an interest? How does that grasp onto one's mind and heart? So I want to share a little anecdote that, that helps to introduce how this topic became uh, a passion of mine. So as a, as a young Muslim living in Chicago, um, pursuing a career in management consulting, I remember going to a Friday khutbah one day and the, the sheikh 
um, in no uncertain terms declared that Muslims must be different. And this was shortly after 9-11 in the United States. So you can, um, for those of you that were alive during that time, and, and uh, uh, especially in the United States, recall the scrutiny that American Muslims were facing. And so to, to make a bold statement such as that certainly grabbed the attention of me and I think the other folks who were sitting there in the mosque that day. Um, I was really interested to see how he would support this um, this, this statement with with uh, evidence, as it were, from the Islamic tradition. Like, what would he use? And it would it surprised me because he didn't really focus on the Quran. He didn't cite verses from the Quran to um, demonstrate that this was a, a an Islamic doctrine that we should be following. Rather, um, he cited a number of hadiths. And the, the most prominent of them uh, in Arabic, من تشبه بقوم فهو منهم. And as um, uh, Paul, as you, as you mentioned earlier, whoever imitates the people becomes one of them. I mean, there are different translations. That's the translation that I currently prefer. Um, it may change a few years from now. But um, this this tradition was was uh, was the sort of anchored his his khutbah. And then he began to he went on to cite other ahadiths that focus on more particular issues, um, such as, you know, growing the beard, dressing a particular way, uh, comporting oneself in public life, um, that really attempted to drive home the point that um, Muslims should not be afraid to stand out from the crowd, um, that we should not just be worried about fitting in and blending in and assimilating, but rather we should be, we should be different. Um, and so that khutbah stayed in my mind for some time. And a few years later, I decided that I was not very happy with um, my chosen career. And I opted to pursue a career in the study of Islam, um, both traditionally and in the academy. And when it came time to select uh, a paper for a course in Islamic law, I remembered this khutbah and I remembered this event. And I did a little research and I found that no one, very few people had actually written about this subject in the Western Academy. Um, the first article was written by uh, Ignaz Goldseer, an, an Orientalist, over 100 years ago. Um, and then subsequently, maybe 50 or 60, uh, maybe half a century, more than half a century later, uh, a, um, an Israeli scholar named uh, M.J. Kister uh, wrote another article on it, uh, focusing on uh, Jewish shoes, whether Muslims uh, a prophetic command for Muslims to wear shoes in the mosque. Um, and half the article is on that, but it, it fits within the broader theme of imitating non-Muslims. Yeah. So I saw that there was an opportunity for me to, to actually make an important intervention. And um, that paper snowballed into a dissertation, which became the book that was just published recently, recently in, in November. We'll come, we'll come to the book in, in a second. Sorry, the, the Muslim Difference, which, which is based on your PhD dissertation, of course. Right. So the This year, build your credit history with the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. No credit checks to apply. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Chime checking account and 200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The, the book title is the Muslim Difference. If one is looking at the at the book cover, as I think it's on the screen right now, uh, one can see... Now. There we go. Just oh, sure. Yep. Uh, so, between believers and unbelievers from early Islam to the present is the subtitle. Yeah. Right. So that was how I got into the subject. And um, it, it, it struck me as being an important subject, not only for the, the history uh, of Islam and, and the, the book itself is a study from the origins of Islam, all the way to the present, as connoted by it by the title, um, but I, 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 the the subject struck me as something that um, I thought was also relevant to Muslims today, especially Muslims living as minorities in non-Muslim majority societies, namely the United States, North America, and and Europe. Um, so uh, I, my hope is that in doing this academic work, it wouldn't simply be stuck on the shelves of the libraries, mm. um, read by specialists, but that. Uh, in some ways, I was writing to myself, a younger version of myself, um, you know, uh, a few decades ago. So I, I really do hope that it's it's a book that provides to be beneficial, um, not only for the intellectual life within the academy, but for, for Muslims who uh, are concerned about who they are and who they want to be um, in this life and the next. Mm-hmm. So on to the, uh, onto the presentation itself. Okay, yes. So um, I begin the book with uh, a figure named Muhammad Asad, whom I think most of you know, originally born Leopold Weiss in 1900, um, converted to Islam, perhaps one of the most famous uh, European Muslims of the 20th century, um, and accepted Islam, wrote a famous autobiography of his travels in Mecca. His first published work... Do you want to move the... Is there, we're still on the Muslim difference slide. Is there a next slide right. after um, there we go. Oh, there we go. Um, it's the, uh, so this is the first published work that Muhammad actually, Muhammad Asad actually published. Right. Um, and it was first published, he completed in 1933. It was first published in Delhi, uh, in India. And he mentions in his, uh, um, uh, forward that it, it got some attention, but when it was translated into Arabic, it got even more attention. But here's what he says. The imitation individually and socially of the Western mode of life by Muslims is undoubtedly the greatest danger for the existence or rather the um, revival of Islamic civilization. So this is a very bold statement. And for him, as a relatively new convert, um, as a European Muslim, he saw this idea of uh, tashabbu as being very central to the, the past, present and future of Islam. <clears throat> the, and he also then would cite the hadith that I've mentioned already, but, um, you know, whoever imitates the people becomes one of them. It's of the six Sunni collections of hadiths, it's transmitted, it's collected only by Abu Dawood. However, um, even though uh, it's one of the Siha um, Sitta, only one of the Siha Sitta to transmit this, uh, collect this hadith, many other collections. Um, uh, transmit this hadith in, in varying versions. In the book, I explore different versions of the hadith and different narrations. I won't go into that level of depth today. Um, is it Hassan or Sahih? I mean, is it reliable? It's not yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, 
without going into all the internet issues, but just in terms of how it's perceived to be. Uh, yeah, there, there's a range of opinions on this on this uh, hadith. Um, you know, for Ibn Taymiyyah, he considers considers it to be a Hassan tradition. Um, I'm personally persuaded, based on my own research uh, into this into the subject, that it's at the very least Sahili Ghairihi. In other words. Uh, even if there may be some issues with the isnad, in particular the isnad um, uh, collected by uh, by Abu Dawood, that the other traditions, the other narrations, um, elevate the hadith from Hassan to Sahih. And so um, hadith scholars uh, call at least one of the names is Sahili Ghairihi as, as opposed to in being intrinsically Sahih. So this wow. is my you know assessment based on my research of this hadith yeah. and speaking with other scholars and muhaddithun uh, on the subject. Um, so we can consider it to be uh, 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 you know sound and 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 strong. Um, there is another uh, narration attributed to Umar bin al-Khattab collected in the Musannaf of Abdul Razak, um, which is interesting. Um, the fact that it's attributed to him because the the companion who is most closely associated with transmitting this hadith is actually his son, Abdullah ibn Umar. So there's an interesting connection um, mm -hmm. there. Once again, I, I speak about that in the book, um, but for the, the hadith nerds out there and those who are really interested in, in the subject, I, I encourage you to uh, you know, visit, uh, read the article uh, that I published on this, on this hadith uh, and, and read the book as well. Okay. So this hadith, to kind of go into and focus a bit more on the, on the matin or the, or the content, um, is both descriptive and prescriptive. Um, and here's what I mean by that. In other words, it describes a state of affairs existing in the world, i.e. that um, when an individual or, or a group emulate or imitate another people or another individual, they acquire those qualities and become like them. But it is also prescriptive. Um, in other words, it is also indicating, because the Prophet is a, a guide, alayhi salam, uh, encouraging us to behave in a particular way and pay attention to those whom we emulate and imitate. Yeah. So this is where, you know, in the same book, Islam of the Crossroads, Muhammad Hassan said, uh, this well-known prophetic tradition is not only a moral admonition, but also an objective statement of fact. In this case, the fact of the inevitability of Muslims being assimilated by any non-Muslim civilization, which they imitate in its external forms, right? This is it's dense, right? Um, but if we unpack it, we see that he's claiming both that it's describing a state of affairs in the world. It's an objective, uh, empirically verifiable statement, but it's also an admonition of the prophet to pay attention to whom um, you imitate. And more particularly, more particularly for Muhammad Asad living in 1933 after the fall of the caliphate as a European Muslim, uh, he sees Muslims as, you know, from his perspective, um, losing their religion, as it were. Um, and, and sort of rushing to emulate and imitate the West. And this is a, a, a direct product of colonialism, right? We can also use that as a, as a, as a frame to understand Muhammad Asad's anxieties and concerns. Yeah. So what I, what I think is really important for us all um, and all viewers to keep in mind is this hadith is, is so potent. Um, it's uh, when one looks in sort of the uh, classical collections of the hadith al-mushtahara or the well-known prophetic traditions, one will find this hadith among them as the most, among the most popular hadiths uh, delivered by the prophet or attributed to the prophet. Mm -hmm. and, and we can understand perhaps why, because it, it brings together these large issues um, about belonging, identity, 
and alterity, which is a fancy, a fancier term of talking about otherness or, or, or how one connects and relates to the other, the outsider. Um, and this is one of the reasons why this hadith, I think, um, you know, uh, became the the anchor of of this discourse of this doctrine that we're we're learning about today. Okay. So continuing on. Um, Muhammad Asad's solution to the problem of imitation is its obverse. So he, he says, a Muslim must live with his head held high. He must realize that he's distinct and different from the rest of the world. And he must learn to be proud of it as being different. I've bolded uh, these terms. He should endeavor to preserve this difference as a precious quality and pronounce it boldly to the world instead of apologizing for it and trying to merge it into other cultural circles. Right. So this is a young Muhammad Asad, um, you know, really boldly encouraging his his um, fellow believers, his co-religionists to um, stop worrying about what Europeans are doing, what Europeans are wearing um, and how they're behaving, but rather uh, recall and preserve what makes them special, what makes them unique um, within their tradition. So this is a, a I'm going to just speak yeah, a little bit about Muhammad Asad. This is uh, the classic and iconic photo that we see of Muhammad Asad um, with an iqal and a gotura. Right? And iqal is sort of the, the circular um, yeah. uh, ring that we see on the top of his head and the gotura being the, the head uh, covering um, uh, that he's wearing along with a, a thobe uh, that you know shows him in Arabic garb. Um, what's interesting, though, as a... Sorry, if I can... Sure. What matters for him is that he was actually a European. He was, a, I think he was a Polish or Austrian. I'm not quite sure. The borders changed a bit. Um, and it, you know, came from a long line of rabbis. And, you know, when he, when he was a journalist uh, in Europe, he didn't look like that. So he has made that transition to a very distinctively uh, Islamic, as it was understood then, Islamic appearance. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, he was born in Lviv, Ukraine. He was a linguist. Um, I think he was competent in about seven or eight languages. And, you know, in, in, in reality, he was a cosmopolitan. And, and this is actually Mohammed Asad Platz in Vienna, just outside the um, U, uh, United Nations, uh, uh, which, I mean, it was remarkable that he is remembered as this co what is a deeply cosmopolitan figure, um, yeah. not, a, not a parochial thinker, you know. No. I mean, he himself passed away in... Uh, in Granada, Spain, um, yes. and so it's very—it's a very interesting figure. But I, I, I like to begin. I, I deliberately chose to begin with him because, on the one hand, he's advocating for, you know, a an uncompromising Muslim difference, right, in 1933. But when we look actually at his life and his his person and his figure, um, it's a bit more complex. It's a bit more complex. He actually usually dressed in European attire. There we go. That, that's in dress as a European at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is how he usually dressed. He didn't usually dress as an Arab, um, an Arab garb when he was living in Europe, um, which is interesting. And and I think that also shows a slow evolution in, in his thought, which I which I discuss in, in the book. Um, but I think this also shows that the subject isn't so black and white. It's a nuanced topic. When we're talking about negotiating similarity and difference, we're talking about identity. It's a subject that it's it's complex and it's subjective um, as much as it also um, is anchored within the normative kind of boundaries of, of Islam. And, and so I, I want to begin with this because it's a rich and sort of comp it's a space of contradiction, as it were, 
or a, a variegated heterogeneous space, intellectual space, to begin thinking about the subject, which I think is so important, um, not to reduce it in two simple terms. So kind of moving on from Muhammad Asad, right? And I return to him in the conclusion uh, of my book, um, but I want to kind of now dwell a bit more on imitation itself and, and just think it, think it through with all of you. Well, I just want to mention, by the way, for people who don't know, uh, Muhammad Asad wrote an extraordinary commentary and translation of the Quran, uh, which is still uh, widely read today. Uh, and uh, it's certainly worth looking at. It's obviously in English and his commentary is quite unique. Um, and it, it comes from the very much as cosmopolitan, incredible learning as well. So and there are criticisms of it. Some people don't necessarily agree with the metazolite leanings, allegedly. But um, I just want to highlight that it is a remarkable work of scholarship, nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. I have it on, on, you know, on my shelf. It's one of my favorite Quran translations, certainly one of my go to translations. Um, he spent decades, um, more than, you know, decades on it. Uh, which yeah. I think is remarkable. And he lived in tribes in Saudi Arabia, just so he could learn the most authentic uh, Arabic, he thought, at, at that time. He really went the extra mile or a thousand miles to ensure an authentic uh, Islamic translation of the Quran. Yeah, and, and when reading, you know, um, you know, Islam at the Crossroads, right, which is his first published work, um, regardless of what one may, you know, think of, you know, every, you know, every statement and every claim he makes. I mean, what I really appreciate just kind of rereading it just recently um, is you can just feel his passion. I mean, he cares so deeply um, mm -hmm. about this faith and uh, it, it kind of it comes through. And I, I love his story in the, in the beginning of the foreword when he talks about how he would, you know, a, a, as a non-Muslim talking with Muslims, he would feel himself wanting to defend Islam on behalf of Muslims, even before he became Muslim, until someone said to him, you're a Muslim, you don't even know it. <laughs> and that statement sort of like, that was the light bulb moment for him, right? Uh, where he realized, oh, I'm a Muslim, I didn't even know it. And I, I, just, I just love that kind of narrative in the foreword to the book, which I encourage everyone to read. Um, so, you know, uh, on to imitation itself, and you see some copycats, right? So, very <laughs> um, witty. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, imitation is 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 a is a social technology. Um, it's it's something that affects every aspect of our of our lives. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at you know, just having had a, a you know a baby daughter, one of the first things you know as or one observes as she grows is her, you know, just copying, right? She'll copy one's facial features. If I kind of come close to her and start laughing, she'll start laughing. So at a very early age, we are hardwired to learn through imitation. Um, and this continues for the rest of our lives, uh, as, 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 we'll, as we'll see. So there's really no sphere of life that we can think about that doesn't, that imitation doesn't play an important role. Like as a student a student in the academy as a phd student i mean your phd your advisor is a mentor to you you're you're doing to shampoo um, of your phd advisor uh and other uh, scholars um uh, within the field of media we talk about role models for example and social media and the role models are our children are following and celebrities um, and even celebrity imams and sheikhs uh because how we who we are is so much defined by the people and the individuals we choose consciously and unconsciously uh, to imitate. So that's another reason why I really um, was drawn to the subject, because the subject of imitation and the subject of difference also illuminates our humanity, what it means to be human.
Mm. Uh, it highlights the fact that something that we've lost in modernity to some degree with um, this, uh, our, our modern focus on the individual, the individual self, um, is that there, in truth we are social animals, we are social beings. Um, or, sh- or sheep, as you seem to be implying there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you could say that. And, you know, I mean, it's important to keep in mind, right, the, the, the prophets, uh, uh, you know, uh, peace be upon them all, were shepherds, right? And this is something uh, in, in part to remind us that um, of their leadership uh, development, but also that so much of what they're doing are, is guiding uh, groups and how to get individuals to work together uh, as groups and also to remind us that like sheep we humans um, also operate in groups and if we don't and if we go off on our own um, and are and lack social skills or lack the ability to connect and relate to others uh, that can be damaging and we see much of that in, in the world today and just to be really controversial and this is not your view this is my view I, I do stress uh, I, I, I just saw this on Twitter an hour ago um, to do with the uh, the new uh, Barbie movie, which is like taking oh, yeah. the world storm at the moment. Lebanon's cultural minister, uh, Mohammed Mortada, uh, has banned the movie, saying really? the film, yeah, and he's not the only one. Kuwait apparently has just banned it too. Why, though, is the reason, and this, this connects to your point about human beings being social animals and imitating role models and so on. Um, although he's not saying that, but he says the film is banned because it promotes homosexuality and transsexuality, supports rejecting a father's guardianship, undermines and ridicules the role of the mother and questions the necessity of marriage and having a family, end quote. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I've not seen the f- film. I'm not about to go and pay money to see a Barbie movie. I don't know, probably <laughs> not tea um, or coffee. But, uh, but this connects to, you know, young people, young kids, seeing this movie, if it does, some Islamic ability promote these uh, questionable values, then as social animals or as sheep, as you see, you know, we will go with the herd and we will be affected and influenced by this stuff. And if we view it as harmful, then that matters. It's not just a question of my individual choice, but we are social animals, which of course is exactly what Aristotle said. That's a quote from him, I think. Yeah, it is alluding. And, and, and this also goes to show you that, um, you know, the, the idea of imitation of mimesis was something that you know, Plato and Aristotle were also writing about. Um, yeah. Plato spoke about the terror of mimesis and the corrupting influence of artists on the oh. poets, um, yeah. the imitator, imitators par excellence. So, um, yeah, and I, and I think this is why this tradition and this discourse, this doctrine uh, has gained so much momentum in modernity, um, especially with all these modes of how we as individuals are influenced, right? And, and it's even become, I think, even more urgent uh, with the internet and, and social media to think deeply about um, you know, who we're becoming and why we're becoming what we're becoming. Uh, you know, so this is, I didn't know about this uh, news and thank you for sharing it. Yeah, it's, it's Lebanon's culture. So Lebanon just banned the film. Uh, this is Barbie and Kuwait, I'm told, have. Uh, I would imagine there'd be other countries who knows if malaysia and indonesia this could end up being banned by a lot of countries because of its perceived uh, promoting of uh, subversive values undermine the family and so on and so the, so these people are very sensitive to the issues i think of your raising imitation particularly young people 
imitating uh, undesirable uh, role models and so on. But I say I haven't seen the film, so I can't speak to this directly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and neither have I. So. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine you, Dr. Patel. I <laughs> Maybe when your girl grows up, you might. I, don't know. I that you know that's that's the thing. I mean, who knows what my drag us to see. <laughs> yeah. um, so you know, kind of moving on 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 this Bobby. yeah, of imitation, and I'm going to explore imitation in a bit more detail with regard to the Islamic tradition in a bit. But I want to dwell on the Arabic term that we've been kind of throwing around for, for you know since the beginning of this uh, presentation, and that is tashabbu, right? So for Arabic students, it's a fifth form Arabic term, tashabbuha ya tashabbuhu, tashabbuhun, tashabbuh wa mutashabbih, fifth form, which indicates some level of self-reflexivity. But in terms of thinking about it within uh, sort of a semantic field within the English language, um, we can think of other terms in addition to imitation, such as mimesis, simulation, Mimicry, even assimilation, resemblance. This is a, it's an Arabic term. It's a rich uh, Arabic term that can encompass uh, these different English terms, and 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 so one could translate the hadith and this term differently depending on the the linguistic and social context one is is using. So I want to also keep that in mind because this is also philological interest to me, and I think. Um, to think about the translation between Arabic and English. And it's not always a, a sort of one-to-one -one homology, but there's often, um, you know, there's great sort of variety uh, and heterogen heterogeneity that, that's important to keep in mind. Well, what I want to do is also now think about um, how one particular figure who is very close to my heart in the Islamic tradition, but who isn't really well known, um, defines the, the term tashabbu. Um, his name is Najmuddin al-Ghazi. He lived in the 16th and 17th century. He's a figure that I focus on uh, in my book. I devote an entire chapter to him. Um, and his uh, definition, I think, is, is, is helpful to also for us to think with uh, an, an English translation. Humans seeking sometimes by artifice or deceit to become a likeness of the imitated. Shib mutashabbah bihi. So in other words, uh, you know, this idea of tashabbu involves human beings seeking to become something other. And for him, it's very subtle because what I appreciate about the Arabic in particular, he doesn't say, he doesn't write become other. He says become a likeness of the imitated, suggesting, mm -hmm. I think, I would in my reading, that one can never completely and totally assimilate oneself, become something totally other. But one can aspire to become, this. in other words, something of an ontological gap, right, to kind of uh, get a little more abstract here, between the figure, the imitator, and the original. One can get close, but there's always something that's going to be different, right, that's going to defy, defy, divide you from me, for example, uh, Paul. I mean, I could imitate you because I admire you so much, but there's only so much I can do to become truly like you, Paul. <laughs> Really, you got much better. Let's just see. You have much better dress sense. I mean, look, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Guys, not only do I like the uh, the, the the exquisite, uh, it's, it's very very beautifully done. But actually, it's color coordinated with the background. The woman, <laughs> it's all this kind of creamy browns and colors. Very very, very tasteful indeed, sir. <laughs> thank thank you uh, thank you, Paul. Um, you know, after I must admit, after doing this research on the subject, I became much more conscious of. Yeah. Um, sartorial matters to put it uh, you know 
particular way. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll take your compliment. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Now, what I want to do is also put Najmuddin al-Ghazi, who lived in the 17th century, which some, which some, with some modern thinkers, um, you know, Western, European, uh, and North American thinkers, who define mimesis, right, which is a other term that I mentioned that Tashabu mm -hmm. can also uh, be kind of equivalent to. So Walter Benjamin, a famous critical theorist um, uh, living in the 20th century, described mimesis as to become and behave like something else, right? So, and then Michael Tosig kind of riffing on Walter Benjamin, who's an anthropologist um, at Columbia University, who wrote a book called Mimesis and Alterity, uh, described mimesis as exploring difference, yield into and become other, right? And these definitions, I think, elaborate um, you know, this idea further, but also connect to and link up with Najmundi Dalgazi. So I think we can put them in conversation. This is one of the, I think, benefits of, of studying a subject like this within the academy, to be honest with you, is because you get to make these connections that you might not, not otherwise make. And I think it's profound in terms of exploring knowledge per se. Allah is al-haq, all knowledge belongs to him, and it's always a, um, a privilege and honor to sort of make these connections between different thinkers. Um, now, kind of shifting to Al-Ghazali, because I, I also want to bring him into the, uh, into the picture, because he's written so much um, about um, cultivating the self, right? Mm -hmm. How to transform oneself into a, 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 uh, you know, a truly godly, uh, not in a sense of becoming like God, but one whose characteristics can be described mm -hmm. as, as godly. Um, and his book, Kitab al-Riyadat al-Nafs, or the Book of Disciplining the Soul, translated by Abdul-Khim Murad, um, he focused on how to acquire good character. And, and sort of in the schematic that I have here, it's a bit of a, you know, um, a simplified schematic, but I think it gets the point across. Um, and sort of this sort of schematic um, or this process that Ghazali describes in his book, uh, he talks about first having a going through a spiritual struggle um, and going through a spiritual struggle and, and, terms of doing good, because doing the right thing is not always easy. But when one struggles to do that, then one has kind of, as it were, elevated in one's rank. But when one does good, not only one time, but is able to repeat and imitate, um, and I've circled it here for clarity, um, <laughs> uh, that is very key to this transformative process that ultimately through repetition and imitation will lead to one uh, achieving some kind of spiritual joy or spiritual bliss, right? A, a true deep connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a, a transformed person, uh, a transformed um, behavior as it were. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the kind of point I want to drive home is tashabbu is transformative. Hopefully this is a mnemonic device or at least easily remember, to, easy to remember, but tashabbu is a social technology that is transformative um, for, for, the, for the person. So I want to just you know, underscore how important this process is to subject formation, to the cultivation of a pious self, a religiously, um, yeah, a pious self. So with that kind of background in mind on tashabbu as in the Arabic term, right, and thinking about it in relation to some Western thinkers, I now mm -hmm. want to move on to thinking about the subject within a kind of normative Islamic framework. Right. Right. Great slides, by the way. I like them. Nice. Thanks. Thanks. I, you know, I, I take um, pride, not in a bad sense, but I, I really, when teaching, right, um, 
uh, teaching undergraduates whose attention spans continually to continue to drop, I realized mm -hmm. having um, engaging slides is actually really helpful. Um, and I myself am a visual thinker, um, right. and I like to see things. When I see things, it it kind of uh, sinks yeah. in it a bit better than if I simply have text without visuals. Um, and I like colors. Anyway, so imitation. I mean, there are probably more ways, and you know one can have even more complex representations of imitation within the Islamic tradition. But this is one way that I wanted to present it so that once again, we can see the, the, the concept of tashabbu in a broader kind of um, conceptual framework. Mm -hmm. And the way I've divided it here is to think about imitation in good terms and bad terms. So terms, uh, Arabic terms, um, uh, concepts in which imitation is usually presented as positive in a positive light is the term of itiba'a sunnah, right? Following the sunnah. And we can you know, find such phrases in the Quran. And also taqlid, a little more, more controversial, but the idea of, you know, people sometimes translate it, I think, in a, in a as blind conformity or blind imitation. And those who translate it in that term tend not to like taqlid. But yeah. I think a, more, a better way of thinking about taqlid uh, is legal conformity. When one chooses to conform to a particular legal school, right, whether it be Hanafi school uh, or the Hanbali school or uh, the Shafi'i school. Um, it also describes a kind of a, a hierarchy within um, Islamic law where you have the mujtahid imams, right, and then you have the lower ranking uh, imams and sheikhs who do taqlid uh, of their legal opinions and maybe select between them, for example. So these, broadly speaking, forms of imitation within the Islamic discursive tradition, within normative Islam, are viewed as positive. Um, Tashabbu, on the other hand, um, generally speaking, uh, and normally, is portrayed as a negative kind of imitation. And I think this is, this is I, 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 I do this to help put it into perspective. Now, the asterisks are there for, for the acute uh, and a discerning observer. You'll see the asterisks uh, on the slide. Mm. Uh, is deliberately there to show you, to indicate that it's normally portrayed in that way. So taqlid is normally, but not always um, positive. And tashabu likewise is normally, but not always uh, portrayed in, in a negative light. We'll come back to this uh, shortly, but kind of building on this, a way to think about this kind of dialectic of imitation and difference is to see tashabu um, as becoming and being portrayed as a bad form of imitation. And therefore, the flip side is that when you have a bad form of imitation and uh, something that an act, whether it might be in you know, some uh, norm on Barbie, uh, the movie Barbie, for example, whether it be, might be dressing up for Halloween, uh, whether it might be, um, uh, you know, any other activity we can think of that, we can think is, is problematic. The obverse, as it were, is to be different. Um, and so we see this in, in and we'll, I'll show shortly, in the hadith traditions as well. When the prophet uh, encourages or exhorts, um, urges Muslims not to imitate, we'll find other traditions that say, a, deliver a similar message, but with a, the, um, with the, exhortation to be different. So a bad imitation, as it were, became um, uh, framed as 
as a uh, imperative or obligation to be different. And so I want to make this conceptual connection here so it's mm. a bit clear. And I think hopefully this, this slide helps us to do that. So what is the result then of the kind of emergence of tashabbu as a bad form of imitation uh, in, in Islamic thinking? And um, what happened, and I discussed this uh, in an article that's dedicated to these treatises and also mentioned it in my book, is that a whole genre of Islamic literature emerged that I call the treatises against imitation, the kutub al-tashabbu. So academics have identified, you know, kutub uh, al-bida, the treatises against bida or treatises against innovation, but um, no one had really identified this uh, as a distinct genre of Islamic writing, and it deserves to be uh, identified. So it originates when we look at uh, the treatises across Islamic history; they originate from a diverse range of geographic locales, including the Levant. Arabian Peninsula, Europe, West Africa, North Africa, and South Asia. Authors include all stars like Ibn Taymiyyah, Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi, Najmuddin al-Ghazi, Usman Danfodio, Qari Muhammad Tayyib, Muhammad Asad, Ahmed al-Ghumari. Um, and for those, once again, who are really interested in looking at all the different treatises uh, that I've been able to locate in either published or manuscript form, I encourage you to kind of um, to visit my academia website and there's an uh, article uh, titled The Treatises Against Imitation, uh, published in, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, Arabica, Arabica, the journal Arabica. Yeah. Most traditional treatises were composed in Arabic, but also Ottoman Turkish, Urdu, and English. And some Arabic texts have been translated into English, modern Turkish, and Indonesian. And most treatises, and this I think is very interesting when I, and unexpected during my research, were composed after European colonialism. Mm -hmm. So a few treatises you can find in, in maybe five in sort of pre-colonial pre Islamic uh, Islam, but a majority were published in print form after colonialism. Well, at that point, uh, the Muslims were un under the under pressure from uh, the powerful Western countries, militarily, culturally, economically. So it was before the, um, the Muslims were the top dog. They, they were the ones who were setting the cultural trends, the fashions. They were the all-powerful. So, yeah, it, it's not surprising. It reflects this uh, complete change in, in their situation in the world. Yeah, and it's, it's remarkable because for me as an, an observer, as a... As a, as a one invested as a, as a as a Muslim, but also as a as a student of the Islamic tradition, it's it's to me it's remarkable that uh, it, it signals to me the challenge, uh, unprecedented challenge in some ways that modernity has presented to Muslim mm -hmm. and this is one indicator um, of that. And from my and my reading and my estimation, but what it also indicates to us, you know, as as um, thinkers, uh, as students of Islam and, and students of the human is that imitation is a relation of power. Right? This is also something that's important to keep in mind and, and sort of implicit. Even in Muhammad Asad's um, uh, statements, there's this anxiety. Uh, I think there's this um, understanding that this pressure to become something else is related to uh, arguably a product of this power disparity 
But what I like about your contribution so far is I usually think of it in terms of an external pressure on the person to conform so that they are accepted. But you've said right at the beginning, uh, you mentioned your, your new daughter, uh, is that it seems like we're hardwired to desire to imitate, um, so, so uh, to be social animals. This is not just a cultural uh, a phenomena. This is somehow part of who we are as humans. So in both senses, both an external pressure and also from within ourselves, the desire to imitate, make it a very powerful force to conform to the prevailing norms, cultural norms. And I hadn't quite appreciated both of those factors. Yeah, ab absolutely, uh, Paul. I mean, in, in different terms, you could, um, one could say nature and nurture, right? Um, it encompasses both um, our biology um, our biological hardwiring, hard that part of who we are and who we become is uh, fashioned through uh, imitation. But also, um, and I think another reason why I became so invested and interested in this subject, it's also a product of culture, right? It's nature and culture, nature and nurture. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and the idea of power, I think, a lot of Muslims today, um, young Muslim men in particular, are often, I think, I think it's are troubled by what uh, and have been troubled uh, by what they see as this um, disparity in power between the Muslim Ummah and um, outsiders. And I think it's it's animated a lot of some of the the, the um, I don't know. I don't want to go too far astray, but that is to say, I, I think it's something that is. Uh, especially for many young Muslim men, it's something that is in the back of their minds and, 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 and it's something that they struggle with. Um, mm. Ibn Khaldun, one of the greatest social thinkers, not just within Muslim society, but yeah. the, the world has ever seen, um, also recognized the, the, the role that power plays in imitation. And so this is before colonialism, right? So he, as you can see, man ahead of his time, uh, he's speaking of, in the context of um, uh, you know, con the conquered and the, the conquerors. So he's trying to explain why there's a tendency for the weak to imitate the strong. And I'm going to uh, read this uh, quote. The reason for this is that the soul always sees perfection in the person who is superior to it and to whom it is subservient. It considers him perfect either because the respect it has for him impresses it or because it erroneously assumes that its own subservience to him is not due to the nature of defeat, but to the perfection of the victor. Mm. If that erroneous assumption fixes itself in the soul, it becomes a firm belief. The soul then adopts all the manners of the victor and assimilates itself to him. This then is imitation. Um, what do you think of this uh, statement, Paul? I'm kind of curious. Oh, what fantastic, uh, fantastically eloquent, fantastically insightful. I'm, I'd, I'd just love to know the context in which he, he, he wrote this, because clearly he must have had someone in his mind in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the so-called inferior against the superior. Who is he actually talking about in his historical context? Um, I also like the fact he talks about the soul. So he, he's not using modern uh, materialist post-enlightenment categories. Like, uh, <laughs> Good point. Uh, I think that's an excellent point. Psychology of the mind. He's using a, a more elevated and I think more accurate term because obviously part of us is immaterial and transcendent, the soul itself. So I like that. It's something we can take from it. But, um, but other than that, there are many th I think it's, uh, it's very good. 
Yeah, no, I, I also appreciate the, um, the particular reference to to the soul. Of course, one might want to look and see if there are alternative translations, but I, I do think that it, it's a, a, a spiritualized um, psychology. Um, yes. And yes. one thing that he that is interesting in this particular observation is this idea that somehow we can, as the imitators or as the one imitating, we can somehow overinflate. Um, or not overinflate, but we can inflate um, uh, uh, our perception um, of the person we're imitating, right? So we think of, say, social media and some so, some figure on social media that we might idolize. Um, oftentimes, we imitate that person based on this romanticized, uh, ver- you know, vision of who that person is. Often, the person in reality may not be what we think. <laughs> or how we imagine that person to be. So uh, what I like is this, uh, Ibn Khaldun identifies this gap between perception and reality. The perception of the, the imitator may not be um, ac- you know, map on very accurately to what the reality of the, the victor is. And so he thinks there's a misplacement, uh, sort of pl- focusing on the, the, as it were, the mechanics of the of the of the loss, right? He's, this is the context of, of military um, when when a um, uh, an aggressor, right, a, 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 an empire, as it were, conquers another territory, right, mm-hmm. uh, or another culture or another society, and how then there's this tendency he observed for the the conquered people to then emulate those who uh, the conquerors. Obviously, this doesn't always happen in history. Like for example, when we look at the the Mongols or we look at um, or for example, conquering um, the Muslims, they eventually converted to Islam, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there are sort of exceptions to the rule, um, but uh, it, it does speak to this idea um, that there's a general tendency of those who were conquered to look up to um, the conquerors. But he says it's not always, um, there's not always, uh, merits for that, um, and so he rather. So I, I, I like the spiritual psychology kind of embedded um, in this in this observation, and it, I think it certainly maps onto reality. And sometimes we just inflate our perceptions; simply don't map onto the reality of who the person we're imitating or the group that we're imitating. So all of this, you know, this is kind of an introduction to the the sort of significance of imitation, and helps us to understand. I think the stakes um, at play when we think about the idea of being different and why uh, across time and place, the the uh, many Muslim ulama f- thought that it was um, sense an urgency uh, to kind of bring the, the flock to kind of uh, refer back to the sheep as it were, to, to the flock within and bring them together and not go astray um, and potentially be eaten by the wolves uh, to bring them together um, so that uh, um, and this imitation doesn't go too, uh, you know, too far. But Muslims were not the only ones to be concerned about these um, matters. And I think it's important to also keep that in mind, right? This is a broader issue within the study of religion, not merely within the study of Islam. So uh, Judaism, for example, uh, should not necessarily be surprising to us that there is also a doctrine, an analogous doctrine within Judaism called Hukkat HaGoy or Hukkat HaGoyem in the plural, 
It refers to the laws, customs, and ways of the Gentiles. And this idea of not imitating the Gentiles is rooted first and foremost in Leviticus 18.3, you shall not follow their ways, their, uh, their laws, their customs. Um, and like there, you know, like one can find a whole discourse in, uh, among ulama on the subject of imitation in Islam, one can find rabbinical discourse as well uh, um, on the subject. So for those of you that are interested, the, the work is called Defining Jewish Difference. The author is Beth Berkowitz in some ways was a model for my own research and my own work, uh, who has composed uh, a book on the subject in the Jewish tradition. So it's a very, for those who are interested in comparative religion, it's a very interesting subject to look at beyond Islam as well. And so quite, of course, there's, there's a similar kind of attitude in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, where uh, it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, uh, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, as uh, Romans 12 too. Um, and that's kind of more a more dunya versus a kind of uh, a spiritual kind of dichotomy rather than uh, uh, perhaps what you're saying so within people within the dunya living realities. But this is still the sense of uh, don't be don't imitate the pattern of this world in a way. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we can also find other statements of Paul. Um, who says, be imitators of me. And um, Elizabeth mm -hmm. Castelli has written a book on, on the subject, um, which I think is, and, and so absolutely, and, and the uh, concept of imitatio Christi, which we can yeah. analogous subject to itibara sunnah, like following and emulating yeah. the, the way of Christ, Thomas uh, Kempis. So absolutely, uh, uh, we can look at this within Christianity and uh, uh, other traditions as well. well. I find it ironic, just an ironic kind of uh, footnote here, the imitation of Christ. You mentioned Thomas Kempis's uh, yeah. seminal book, which when I was a, a Christian uh, had a big influence on me. But oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It was, one of the, uh, it, it was uh, he, I mean, Thomas, Thomas Kempis. Kempis is a, a place in Germany. I visited the monastery there. It was, I was very impressed. But the point is the Christ that he's imitating is not really the historical Jesus. He was a Torah-observant Jew, Palestinian from the Middle East. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a gentilized, uh, westernized Jesus who is not really historical in any way. So, so there's no, uh, uh, he's not a Jew. Uh, so we're not following him as a Jew, basically, uh, who's Torah-observant, who upheld the law, which history shows us he really was. We don't circumcise our children. We don't abstain from uh, um, haram food like pork, like Jesus did. So it, it's a very kind of transformed, gentilized imitation of Christ, I would argue, not really imitating the first century Palestinian Jew. Mm. Uh, Christians are not really interested that much. That mm. They're imitating a very spiritualized, um, uh, mystical Christ, as Thomas Akempis did. Um, and that irony, I think, is ironic. But when these people think they're really like imitating Christ, actually, is he's filtered through Paul and other people. He's not really the Jesus of history, and that's a commonplace observation among scholars. By the way, it's not my idiosyncratic take. <laughs> anyway, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The the search for the historical Jesus, right, is a yeah, whole exactly. um, sub subgenre within the, the uh, academic yeah. study of religion. But you know, thank you, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, and to me as a, as a student of religion, as a student of Islam, this was a, also for me fascinating to sort of see that this is a broader concern with being part of any community, uh, any community that one is a part of, that's a concern. How does one negotiate between identity and difference? This is a, a fundamental um, uh, problematic within um, 
you know, any kind of social belonging. And I, I think just as a, a as a student of, of the human, it's of interest uh, to me. Um, now, what I want to do is, you know, with the, all this in mind, um, mm-hmm. think about what are some potential implications for how we think of Muslim interfaith relations, right? Um, interactions with Christians and Jews, fellow monotheists. And I go into depth in the book. I'm only going to scratch the surface here uh, in this presentation, but I at least want to begin to think about um, what this might uh, imply for Muslim interfaith relations within Muslim-majority societies or within societies in which Muslims are minorities. Um, so it's a bit of a, um, so, you know, this is the, the, the title of my first chapter, Turning Away from Christians and Jews, um, and it's in, with a question mark, right? What is kind of at, what is at stake here? So I want to just draw our attention to the term uh, that we all know, right, as, as, as students of Islam, um, Ahlul Kitab, people of the book. And this is a term, you know, when we, when reading the Quran, for that matter, one of the, I think, interesting thought experiments to do is, what if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what if the author, as it were, the, the lawgiver, didn't do this? What if he, Allah did something different? So, for example, one thought experiment might be, what if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because he's, he's the jabbar, he's the compeller, he's not majboor, he's not compelled. He didn't have to include in the Quran a category called people of the book. Mm. It's not necessary. It could have just simply be all unbelievers or all kuffar or all munafiqun, right? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deliberately inserted this term into the, the Quran. Why? Right? And this is something that um, one can explore only on the day of judgment when we meet God, when we fully know <laughs> when he discloses his wisdom to us what the wisdom is, but we as, as, as readers of the Quran, as, as, as thinkers, as doing tadabbur, kind of reflecting, we can maybe wonder. Um, one thing that struck me in terms of thinking about this term and why I think it's important to keep in mind when talking about the subject of difference is that um, in, in, in my reading, Ahlul Kitab is a connective term that bridges distinct religious identities. Um, and this is something of, this is a, uh, I don't think it's spoken about enough in, um, whether in, in Islamic circles or in the academy, that this was a, a, a great innovation. And now we talk about Abrahamic faiths and um, Judeo-Christian tradition. These are 20th century inventions. I mean, mm. uh, the, the, we, we speak of these terms as if it's always been a state, you know, just a matter of fact. That's just not, it's, it's mainly political, to be honest with you. Um but in reality, the, the, the first real book uh, within the monotheistic uh, world, as it were, um, uh, to think of in these terms is, is the Quran. And I, I don't think the sort of the, it's in, the innovation of this term is, is appreciated enough by Muslims and non-Muslims. It, it really is an, an important innovation. And my reading of the Kitab, right, Kitab is also another word for the Quran itself, as we know. Um, and in terms of translating it, sometimes translated as book. That to me is a bit of a weak translation because, as we know, the Quran first and foremost um, was not delivered in the form of something material to the Prophet, but was in the form of words, right? The words that came through the Prophet's tongue, which was then um, shared with with the world, um, or you know, set on his heart and and expressed and and delivered uh, by the Prophet, and then kind of canonized and written down into the form that we know today. 
the Mus'haf, right? So Kitab, I, you know, a better translation for me is scripture. And some have theorized scriptures being not simply a, a physical object, but as a kind of relationship between, um, you know, the, the, the reader and uh, this entity that we call a kitab. So the kitab, uh, by calling the Ahlul Kitab, by calling Jews and Christians Ahlul Kitab, and other communities have sometimes been folded into this term. I don't want to go there. Um, but I just think it's important to keep that in mind, that this is a connective term, and it's deliberately and consciously chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, despite the critiques that we see in the Quran of, uh, you know, people who, uh, Jews and Christians, right? And I, I just think that broader perspective is really important to keep in mind, especially for Muslim minorities um, living in non-Muslim majority countries. Now, with that in mind, with that kind of background, and one can kind of go further into, um, you know, uh, laws on marriage and food. And, uh, I don't want to, once again, that would get me too far astray, but I just think this single term is important to keep in mind when we think about the exhortations to be to be different. It provides sort of a backdrop and a background that I think is really important for um, Muslims to keep in mind. So here's the thing, kind of with that in mind, it helps us to understand this particular hadith. Um, and I'm going to, uh, this is just a portion of the hadith, and we're going to talk about it in more detail. And, and this is one of the hadiths that I talk about in chapter one in, in detail alongside other hadiths. So here, according to the hadith, and it's transmitted, uh, collected by Bukhari and Muslim, so it's, it's a hadith that's considered to be authentic. He used to love to conform to the practices of the people of the book when he was not commanded to do otherwise. And this is sort of on the testimony of Ibn Abbas. And the term that I'm translating here is conform to the practices of is muwafaqa. Sometimes I see the translation agree with. I just think that's uh, it doesn't really fully um, help us understand what is actually happening. Uh, rather, as a, d a default practice, right, at least in some stage and during the prophecy uh, and mission of the prophet, there was a default practice to conform to the practices of the people of the book, to align, maybe a different, a better way of thinking about it is to align, to align Muslim practice with those of Jews and Christians, except when he was commanded to do otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is part a part of a hadith, and I want to keep this in mind because it helps us understand, uh, or at least um, so out of context, someone might see that and be like, that's, that's just, that's un-Islamic, right? And I've gotten that response from people. That's, that seems to contradict the Quran. But I think the term Ahlul Kitab helps us to understand why this would have been uh, a, a preference of the Prophet um, for at least a period of time. So literally in his earlier career, we're not talking about, because you've already quoted the Hadith, whoever imitates the people becomes one of them, assuming that's later. So things have changed, the context is different, is that right? Well, we're gonna, well, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, get into that. Um, I'm gonna first, you know, Go further with. I think the hadith itself is helpful for thinking about the trajectory. Right. Okay. Um, so now this is the the other part of the same hadith, right? And I've kind of parsed it because the, the hadith sometimes hadiths they pack so much information together, but to understand what's going on, it's helpful to parse them. And then I'm going to put it together at the end. The other part of the same hadith, right, is that this statement was made within the context of a sartorial matter. So the people of the book used to let their hair hang down while the pagans used to part their hair. So the messenger of God let his hair fall down over his forehead. Based on your, what you see, Paul, of this statement, what is Ibn Abbas telling us? Well, it's as you say, it's it's uh, making a 
people of the book that's the jews and the christians used to let their hair hang down while the pagans used to part their hair so uh he is identifying uh with the christians and the jews i assume yes exactly so if we can imagine right so we have uh the the Qureshi pagans the mushriku right and then we have you know, some christian communities living in mecca we have many jewish communities living in medina and elsewhere for that matter southern arabia um and so here ibn abbas is saying like the prophet salam was deliberately aligning himself with monotheistic practice not just ritual practice but even sartorial practice why would the prophet want to why would that even matter right and sometimes this might be difficult for modern day muslims to understand but you know uh, in the 7th century you don't have id cards you don't have passports you don't have driver's licenses so how do you identify that someone is a part of a community or part of another community how they look uh, how they appear and what's a key dimension of how one appears um that identifies or at least indicates one's identity there are many things but one of them is hairstyle and so here we see um that according to ibn abbas the the prophet was deliberately aligning himself and therefore the muslim community with monotheistic sartorial practices in order to say hey look 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 at us we are also monotheists um and i i think this is you know so this part of the and this is the full hadith now and i've kind of parsed it together so i'm going to read it uh in one narrative the people of the book used to let their hair hang down while the pagans used to part their hair he the prophet alayhisalam used to love to conform to the practices of the people of the book when he was not commanded to do otherwise so the messenger of god let his hair fall down over his forehead but parted it afterwards and i think that's the one part of the hadith that i've left out and put it in now so it's really fascinating because it it elaborates this this kind of narrative this sequence that for a period of time the prophet alayhisalam had a default practice of aligning himself and aligning muslim practices with those of other monotheists but then at a certain point in time he decided you know what it doesn't really matter what the people of the book do anymore we're going to part our hair um and what's strange is that you know without context one might be like wait why is the prophet aligning himself with pagan practice yeah Well, there's only context is the key here, isn't it? Yeah. Context is the key, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, so, why would then the prophet end with emulating pagan practice? That doesn't make any sense. They seem they would certainly be the last people the prophet would would want to imitate. The way to understand it, um, actually, you know what? Before I go there, let's let's move on to another case, and then I'll kind of put it together. Okay. And this is something that we all know: the the qibla change. this is a this is in the quran and this is uh, an event that helps to further explain or at least clarify the pivot that the prophet is making so um as you know many viewers may know initially when the prophet you know received the command to pray when he you know during the miraj um and pray five times a day um where did muslims face right um of course in mecca they were facing the kaaba but the kaaba you know is could be one could face it in any 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 direction but then what 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 did muslims do when they're in medina um there is some dispute on this but the general view right a a a um common view is that initially um muslims 
when they would pray, like the Salah, uh, Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha, would face Jerusalem, right, in, in Medina, uh, not, not Mecca. And this might be kind of strange to us, um, but this is perceived or understood to be at least in conformity with the practice that Ibn Abbas was speaking, um, to align Muslim practice with those of existing monotheists, uh, in particular Jews, obviously, for whom Jerusalem was a, is and is um, a sacred uh, place. Um, so here, though, we see that there's, um, for those familiar with the early history of Islam, a kind of deterioration of relations between Muslims and Jews, um, and Jewish tribes in particular within Medina. Um, and this, what God tells us here in the Quran was a desire of the Prophet to no longer align himself so closely with you know, monotheistic practice, but rather to um, have uh, to, uh, to embody a new spirit of independence. And so this command here in the Quran to turn around during prayer, and this according to traditions and, and the hadith happened during prayer itself, right? We even there's a masjid al-qiblatain, the masjid of the two qiblas, uh, where it is said during prayer, the Prophet salam literally turned uh, to face a new qibla, a new direction. Um, and this is what is being described here in the Quran, right? So does this signify a turning away from Jews and Christians? Uh, um, and this is a, a subject of questioning, a uh, subject of debate among scholars, uh, pre-modern and academic. Is it more about rejecting Judaism and Christianity, or is it more about longing for Mecca, or is it kind of a mixture of the two, right? What was the primary motivation, or were there multiple motivations? So this is a question for, you know, us to ponder about. There's no sort of simple answer. I argue in my book that it's um, a combination of both, that it's both a longing for Mecca, uh, a, an affirmation of Mecca as a, uh, as a place of the exilic longing, but also I would argue a, 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 an expression, a symbolic expression of Muslim independence, that we are no longer, um, uh, it's no longer necessary for us to simply align ourselves or simply fit in or assimilate monotheistic practice, but we can now embody some forms of religion that display our difference, our distinction, our uniqueness. Um, and that's that's my reading. It's kind of a combination of both. And um, I encourage folks to, to, to read uh, the chapter and, and come upon their own conclusions um, about what they think is happening. Now, this turn, this, this sort of pivot, um, happened in other spheres of life as well. And there are many hadiths um, that I explore in the book that I, I cannot, uh, I, I will, I'm not going to go over in this uh, presentation, maybe in a future presentation, but I want to just highlight a couple here so we understand what is happening. Here are a couple of traditions um, that uh, we find in the uh, authentic uh, collections of, of hadith. One, that both focus on the beard. And the beard, as we know, became a distinctive feature of uh, Muslim males in Islamic tradition. We know that the Prophet ﷺ grew out his beard. Um, the madhahib uh, all have rulings on growing the beard uh, and the importance of growing a beard, some kind of beard, if one is able to. And these rulings are generated or derived from uh, authentic hadiths that uh, speak of how Muslims should style 
their beard. A Muslim man should style their beards. So according to one tradition, um, the Prophet says, you know, do not imitate the polytheists, mushrikeen, grow your beards and trim your mustaches. The context for that is that, um, and I think there are multiple narrations, but one narration is that uh, some Persians came to visit the Prophet um, and they had, uh, they were otherwise clean shaven, except for their mustaches. The Prophet looked away in disgust and said, we grow our beards and we trim our mustaches. So a way of setting apart Muslim kind of facial hair, Muslim male facial hair from those, um, uh, at least uh, the Persians of the time, right? Another tradition speaks of dyeing the beard. This is a bit more of a controversial subject because it's debated whether the Prophet himself actually dyed his beard. But according to, th to this hadith, the Prophet is commanding Muslims to dye your beards be different from Jews and Christians. So how do, if Jews and Christians, Jewish and Christian males are also growing their beards, how do we distinguish Muslim beards from their beards? So the, the, the context then for the hadith, uh, or at least the explanation given, is that, oh, Muslims should dye their beards. And there, there are studies of what kind of dyes were existence, in existence, what colors. Um, but this helps to explain why some Muslim males today use henna to dye their beards and why that has become a tradition uh, among many uh, Muslims who grow the beard. There are many other hadiths that apply to um, not only beards, but headgear, um, to uh, performance of prayer, for example. I mentioned the hadith earlier about wearing shoes during prayer. Um, and so there are a lot of other traditions that focus on this idea of displaying difference. So that's the, uh, an important thing to keep in mind uh, is that um, this, uh, these traditions um, apply to uh, visible forms of, of being Muslim. So what I call embodying Muslim difference. You there, Paul? Um, yep, yep, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll tackle this, but I'm, I'm aware that, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in France and one of the most visible uh, symbols of difference, physical differences for women is the hijab. Uh, which is banned in many uh, areas of life, and employers are free to refuse employment. Any employer legally is free to employ, uh, not to employ a woman if she's wearing a hijab. It's actually legal discrimination against Muslims in France. Um, so, uh, and, and there's definitely an asymmetry of power here. That there's no um, Muslims can't change the law <laughs> so far, anyway. Um, and so, the, 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 many of these identity markers are quite political and uh, controversial. And um, you know, there's much uh, Islamophobia, as we call it today, behind behind them in the West, obviously in France, particularly. Yeah, and 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 absolutely, there's a connection between these visible expressions of Muslimness, Muslim identity, in public life, and what we're find what we find here in these um, hadith traditions. Uh, as I argue in my book, um, sometimes uh, to understand what I believe the Prophet salam is is doing. Is from my perspective, he's um, helping to create a, um, a a visible Muslim public, as it were, or helping to define an Islamic public space. Uh, one could kind of go uh, depth into aesthetics and politics. Um, I, I kind of touch upon those subjects in the book, but the the kind of conceptual point I want to kind of really focus on here is that what we can find in these traditions on being different is that uh, it's 
it's not simply meant to be an abstract sort of theological difference. Right. Rather, what we find in these hadith traditions is that Muslims are encouraged by the Prophet to embody physically their difference. Um, and the question for Muslims today is that, you know, does do the you know I, I think for many Muslims is what are the con how do we apply this today? Mm. Are these traditions meant to be applied today? And if so, how um, within a nation state? Uh, the nation state being a different kind of political entity than what we find in 7th century Arabia, or for that matter, the caliphate. And I think this is something that has to be discussed and debated. Um, it's, it's not a simple answer, as you kind of alluded to with power relations, um, politics, discrimination. Uh, the headscarf, for example, is a, a, sub, is a case study that I look at in the book in particular. And there's a very fascinating tradition that I was, that kind of shocked me, where the, as caliph, as second caliph, Omar bin al-Khattab, chastises a woman for wearing the headscarf. He demands she actually remove it. Why is that? Well, what was the context? The context is that uh, she was a slave woman mm. and the slave woman should not be imitating free women. Mm. So this is something that once again, as modern Muslims, like mm. this is strange. Why would, the, why would the second caliph demand that a woman remove her headscarf? And mm. I think, but I think these moments are actually so important for modern Muslims, contemporary Muslims to understand. Mm. Because it then helps us understand our moment and what makes it similar and different to the past. And then that allows us, that gives us the freedom, I think, or empowers us to figure out how to embody our Islam today. If we don't do that, we simply cut and paste from the past, we can, it can actually be very harmful to us. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know much about what the Prophet Peace upon him actually used to wear, but I, I seem to recall reading that he, he routinely wore a turban, for example. Is that is that true? And, and if that is the case, how many people... How many Muslims I know wear turbans? It, it's quite unusual. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, that's, I, I talk about the turban and his particular style of tying the turban uh, in the book and why I think it's kind of, it was a, uh, actually quite ingenious um, approach to it. Um, but but you're right. These are, these are complex issues. Um, I, you know, I, I see it's most Muslim men don't wear turbans, but that doesn't mean that Muslim men, uh, can't wear turbans or shouldn't wear turbans, if that makes sense. But there are other things, obviously, that there, there are, I mean, we're supposed to dress modestly, so we're not supposed to, you know, I mean, there are other parts of Hadith that talk about, you know, women who are dressed but naked, you know, their, their clothing is so tightly fitting. They might right, pass, right. Actually naked anyway. and, and that's obviously not haram. So that we're supposed to wear loose-fitting clothes that don't reveal, uh, and then obviously cover the, the, the relevant parts of the, the anatomy, women wear the hijab. So there, there are dress codes, regardless of that, the content of it, you know, is it Pakistani, uh, Saudi or, or uh, Indonesian style? But nevertheless, they are meant to cover in certain ways and to be worn in a certain way that's loose fitting and so on in accordance with the requirements of the Quranic requirements of modesty and so on. So I, I guess the, the detailed cultural form is not really the issue. It's It's... There's a kind of broader brush criteria that's used uh, in determining what's halal, I suppose, and what isn't. Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know an excellent point, and um, you know these are ways in which you know Muslims today, if they're trying to figure out like what does it mean for me to embody my Muslimness and embody my identity, you can sort of think about the broader principles. Um, priorities as it were and kind of then drill down to figure out what makes sense 
um, for the time and place in which I live. One yeah. theory or one theory that helped me to kind of put in perspective what I what I saw the what I thought the prophet was doing is this theory called the narcissism of small differences by mm -hmm. the theory of Sigmund Freud. It's a very interesting theory. Um, it has its limitations, but the the thing that I liked about it was that um, he argued that those entities, individuals or groups that are most similar will attempt to distinguish and differentiate themselves in minor ways and through small differences. Um, an illustration of this point, and I, I found this illustration online, I thought it was helpful, is uh, GCC Thobes. So, for example, if you go visit Bahrain, and I'm, I'm sure, uh, have you had a chance to visit, have you, you just visited? Oh, so, no. Yeah, so what is GCC, can you just explain to everyone what GCC means, please? Sure, so for, uh, we're talking about Gulf countries, right? Gulf, Gulf countries. countries. So, right. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, yeah. Oman, Kuwait. Now, yeah. it's common for men in these countries, as I think uh, most folks know, to wear a thobe and then some kind of headgear. Yeah. Uh, now, what I like about this illustration is that it shows us that the thobes that Emiratis wear and Saudis tend to wear and Bahrainis wear, they're similar, but they are distinct yeah. in small ways. Yeah. Small ways. So, for example, it could be the color uh, style, the buttons, um, and also some of the headgear. There can be subtle differences. And in this way, they show that on the one hand, we are part of the Gulf, right? We're Gulf Arabs, we're Gulf Arab Muslims, but we're also distinct at the same time. And this is what, you know, with kind of going back to the, the kind of Ahlul Kitab, um, going back here in the um, Ahlul Kitab, what I see the Prophet is trying to do at this point in time um, mm -hmm. with these Ahadith traditions. It's like, look, we're monotheists. We agree that God should be worshipped. Prayer is good. Charity is good. Um, I mean, you kind of alluded to this. Dressing modestly is good. This is something that Jews and Christians can agree. Eating um, pure food uh, is a good thing. Treating each other well is good. Um, you know, all these uh, ethics, as it were, uh, that align with um, historically what observant Christians and Jews have also believed in. Um, but, hey, look, despite the similarities, um, we're going to embody ourselves, embody our we're still going to say that we're different and distinct. And I think this, for me, uh, helps to put into perspective what the Prophet is doing in these Hadith traditions. And the reason why I think it's so important to keep this broader perspective in mind is that I've met Muslims, many Muslims, uh, or at least some Muslims, who think that the prophet in these traditions, which I'm going to go back, I'm sorry, I don't want me to be kind of disorienting for the viewer, but the prophet is simply um, attempting to show that any kind of emulation is prohibited in Islam, that any kind of sort of uh, emulation of outsiders uh, or unbelievers means is tantamount to apostasy, is tantamount to unbelief, means that you can't be authentically Muslim. And I don't think that what, that's what the Prophet was doing, alayhi salam. Um, I think what he's trying to do is to uh, say, look, we're monotheists. We're still Ahlul Kitab. But we're going to embody our monotheism in a different way. We're going to visibly display our difference as, our, as a distinct community of Muslims uh, in public life. 
And that is what I think the prophet was doing, alayhi salam. And I think, ironically, Sigmund Freud's theory helps to understand how that was actually taking place. So this helps, I would argue, and this is an argument that I'm making. People are free to disagree. Um, but this is based on my over a decade of research and uh, exploration of the subject. Uh, mm. And I think this is very relevant to Muslims living in the West today, uh, mm. how they're cultivating their own identities uh, and what it might mean. So it also, you know, for example, you might note that I'm wearing a, a, a shirt with a, a Mandarin collar. That's in some ways a deliberate choice by me, uh, mm. to a collared shirt with a tie. It's not a blatant, overt form that I'm different and distinct. It's a subtle form that I am yeah. unique, as it were. Um, mm. as, uh, and, and so I don't have to be that kind of blatant in your face uh, yeah. and kind of a very kind of aggressive or, or maybe not aggressive, but abrasive, like abrasively, uh, op oppositionally different, um, as opposed to something that's more subtle. Now, that's my personality, too. Um, I tend not to be a person that likes to uh, attention to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where one's subject positioning, one's own persona and uh, can come also you know, play a role. I've met, for example, some Muslims who are so deeply in love with the Prophet, they just love wearing a green turban and a thobe uh, everywhere they go. I would not tell them not to do that, you know, because mm -hmm. um, that's something that is, that's out of their love for the Prophet, salam, and they yeah. want to embody uh, yeah. Their faith in that way. Uh, alhamdulillah, I, I, I encourage that. Um, the, 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 the question for us, right, and the question for us is, what, what is, you know, required for us? Um, and I think that's a different question than what, how one wants to embody subjectively their piety. I think those are two different questions. Okay, there we go. So, now kind of beginning to, um, you know, so the discourse of tashabu that we've been discussing applies mainly to relations between Muslims and non-Muslims. And this is something that I, you know, discuss in my book and I hopefully is evident now. However, the discourse of tashabu of imitation also governs relations between Muslims and other Muslims. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so to sort of see how that works and, um, I want to look at once again at what I think is the greatest work ever written on this subject in the Islamic tradition by the figure Najmuddin al-Ghazi, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, the Damascene uh, scholar, uh, uh, Ottoman Damascene scholar. His book uh, in Arabic, Lima Warada Fit Tashabbu, or in, in my English translation, The Virtue of Awakening to What Has Been Transmitted About Imitation. In this work, it's a multi-volume work, 12 volumes in a printed edition. He spent nearly 40 years writing it. So this was his life. This was his wow. magnum opus. Um, but I think what it does, it helps us to put into perspective the, the kind of conceptual reach uh, or ex expansiveness of Tashabu. And I should emphasize that uh, this isn't something that he simply made up. Like he didn't simply say, oh, I'm just going to think of these categories and um, – put together this book. Rather, he himself was a great muhaddith. He was a, a truly among the muhaddithin. He was also a, a, a Shafi'i a scholar and a, a, a Sufi as well. I mean, it's just a, a, a polymath. Um, so how did he think about the expansiveness of the Shabbu? So the whole book for him, this multi-volume work, was on um, thinking about the 
the application of tashabu within an Islamic normative framework. So he divides it into good imitation and bad imitation. In other words, good tashabu and bad tashabu. So for him, you can see the list of bad imitation is longer, but <laughs> um, yeah. he must be Armagen. <laughs> but um, in his 40% of the book, roughly, of the you know, three or three or uh, thousand or so pages, is devoted to good or positive imita imitation. So he identifies uh, six basic categories. Angels, malaika, prophets, anbiya, martyrs, shuhada, the siddiqun, true believers, pious exemplars, uh, the salihin, and some animals. Which is what's really fascinating is that two volumes of this work on Tashabu is about animals, um, okay. which is a really fascinating subject. Maybe mm -hmm. something we'll talk about in another uh, you know, event. But bad imitation, um, as you can imagine, Satan, Shaitan, not, not someone you should follow and emulate. Um, damned communities of the past, right? So we look at the, read the Quran and we read about uh, communities of the past that were destroyed, say the community of, of Pharaoh, for example, of Fir'aun. Um, for him, Jews, Christians, and idolaters are not moral exemplars. So he's firmly living in the 17th century. Um, and for him, emulating Jews and Christians is generally considered within the category of bad imitation. Well, just on that point, I, I mean, this is all very controversial, but I mean, to bring it brings up to date, just again, back to Twitter. Right. Uh, yesterday I saw, uh, and this, this is going to sound outrageous, but it really is directly relevant. Uh, I'll read what it says. Drag Queen's album hits number one on iTunes Christian charts. So there's a Christian <laughs> chart of the top Christian singles in the world. And, uh, and according to this, uh, uh, an individual who calls themselves Flaming Grant. Uh, this is a take on Amy Grant, who was actually a, f a, a real female. female. Anyway, Drag Queen's album hits number one. Um, so, uh, and there's a, there's a picture of this person here on this Twitter. I say that, that, you know, Christians apparently are really going for quote unquote drag queens. These are men who dress as women in very kind of outrageous and flamboyant ways, which are not meant to be subtle. <laughs> Um, and obviously upset a lot of feminists because they're very kind of crude uh, stereotypes uh, of what it means to be female. But that's a whole other subject. The reason I'm even mentioning this is that, you know, today a lot of Christians seem to like drag queens. This is men dressed as women. Uh, Muslims obviously are told not to do that explicitly in the uh, hadith. Um, and this would be a very recent example of the of a bad imitation of at least many Christians in the West who seem to be all for this now. Well, you're, I mean, you're anticipating actually something, um, another category that I'm about to get to, um, and I think it's something oh, yeah. that we have tweeted about, uh, yeah. you know, connecting, you know, the, the gendered kind of imitation, and we'll, yeah. we'll get there. Or, or, uh, so another interesting kind of category is Arabs imitating non-Arabs. So, for mm -hmm. example, from his perspective, non-Arabs should be imitating and emulating Arabs, but not <laughs> Well, that's a bit of kind of ethnic supremacism, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, see, and but see, that's the thing is, as for for him, it is. It, it, I mean, it is there, but he's arguing that there's a um, basis within the Islamic normative tradition for that. And this is any one of these subjects we could have a separate session on because yeah, it's yeah. so rich and it's quite complex and variegated. But uh, we want to keep in mind that he's also drawing on. Islamic scripture for this. Right. But this is something we find in Ibn Taymiyyah as well. Um, and he's not sort of a, a lone, I would say, a lone voice in expressing this um, belief uh, or conviction, rather. Uh, but, you know, it, it, you're, you're, it is, uh, yeah, uh, for lack of a better word, a form of ethnic supremacy. But Bedouins imitating urban Arabs, 
uh, and reverse, which is fascinating because um, in scriptural tradition, um, there's this idea that um, certain hadiths connote this idea that urban Arabs uh, should maintain some kind of distinction between Bedouin Arabs and vice versa. Men imitating women and re reverse, right? So a famous hadith, la'ana Rasulullah, la'ana Allah, al-mutashabihina bin-nisa, al-mutashabihat bin-rijal. So men imitating women, women Im imitating men, um, emulating men. Uh, the hadith, as you know, on a matter of dress. So this is one hadith, and particularly apropos to uh, today's culture wars on uh, LGBTQ+. Uh, so this is a hadith condemning that. He also lists that under bad imitation. Scholars imitating commoners, right? So the ulama imitating the awam. Uh, scholars should not be imitating or emulating the commoners. Rather, it is the commoners, as it were, ordinary believers that should be imitating or emulating the ulama or the scholars. Rich imitating the poor and vice versa. Um, the, these classes should re remain distinct. Free persons imitating slaves. That's another bad form of imitation. Rather, slaves should be emulating free persons. The sane imitating the insane shouldn't happen. Old imitating young shouldn't happen. It should be the young imitating the old. And some animals are not good for imitation. Now, the reason why this is important to keep in mind is because when we think about hierarchy, right? I know some folks have written about hierarchy. Um, and this is representing how and as it were, an ideal kind of hierarchy that should exist within an, an ideal Islamic society, according to Najm al-Din al-Ghazi, drawing an Islamic scripture. Now, what Muslims today have to figure out is to what degree should, should this ideal hierarchy map onto the kind of ideal Islamic society we want today? And this is, a, this is up for debate. This is up for something that Muslims today have to figure out. Um, it's not simply cut and paste what so-and-so thought in some century. Um, I think that can be harmful actually for Muslims to do. Muslims have to think critically about what it is, um, what kinds of imitation do we want to advocate and uh, emulate uh, or matter today? And what forms of imitation as it were no longer are relevant? And these, these, are, these are difficult questions um, and these are challenging questions that, Muslims today have to figure out and that ulama really need to come together and develop sophisticated, nuanced answers to. Yeah. Um, but once again, I want to emphasize that Najmuddin al-Ghazi isn't making this stuff up. And in the book, I actually show the different hadith traditions that he's drawing on to sort of provide evidence for these, for this kind of schematic, for this um, hierarchical cosmology that he's advancing. Which um, is translated into English, by the way. No, no, no. Uh, to um, I mean, I there are some parts I translate in the in the book, uh, in my book, The Muslim Difference. But this is a, a twelve volume work in Arabic. Um, right. It's going to take someone truly intrepid to <laughs> translate the well, entire. I wonder, I wonder who the, the most appropriate person would be, Doctor Patel, to do that. Could you could you uh, could you read that? So I wonder who the most appropriate individual to do that might be, Doctor Patel. <laughs> less than subtle. Yeah, no. Well, I, I have um, I have translated, uh, or I will um, uh, one um, selected translation of some of the more interesting 
parts on animals will be inshallah uh, published very soon by, by, by myself alhamdulillah um, and I'll be sure to inform you once that is uh, yes but it's something that I that, it, that I am working on um, is a is some parts uh, selecting some parts that I think are particularly uh, significant or important for um, Muslims today uh, or at least that I think would be uh, yeah very edifying and important to, um, to to know now uh, so this to get a glimpse then this is gives you a glimpse of the landscape of the hadiths um, so I in chapter three and, and four I of the book I explore some of these hadiths that talk about these kinds of social distinctions that Najmuddin al-Ghazi and scholars before him advocated. But it also helps us to bring into relief um, our positioning within modernity, right, as, as Muslims, and what it might mean today for us to think through um, how to be Muslim uh, and the ideal society that we, that we want to inhabit. So coming back to this hadith, right, um, I would I would love to spend so much time on this hadith and look at the genealogy of, of interpretations across time. And once again, maybe that's something we can do in the future. But I want to dwell on one point um, that earlier we mentioned that, you know, and Muhammad Asad argued that this is not only prescriptive, but descriptive. So it describes um, what is happening in the world. Whoever imitates a people becomes one of them. But on the other hand, it's a warning of the prophet. So, in other words, when someone says it in the khutbah, uh, when I heard it in the khutbah the, for the first time uh, over two decades ago, it was presented to me as a warning that if you imitate this group, if you imitate um, mainstream uh, America, uh, you're going to become like them. So be careful. Um, don't imitate them. Uh, be different. Now, what I, what I appreciate from Najmuddin al-Ghazi's, you know, uh, magnum opus and this sort of uh, very rich treatise is that he doesn't treat the hadith uh, in as just a um, warning rather he treats the hadith as um, connoting both possibilities in other words if the the one that's being emulated is truly morally reprehensible and morally degenerate then yes it is a warning However, if the one being emulated or the object of emulation is a, an exemplar, then the hadith is not merely negative, it's positive. Um, and this is something that I think when most Muslims hear this hadith today, they, that's not the message that go, is delivered to them. And, and so that's one thing I want to, I think, close this, um, at least, uh, you know, the, the sort of bulk of this presentation on is yeah. for us to kind of think of this hadith more expansively. And that's a, a note that I leave the, 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 the book on um, is for us to really think critically about our own frames of reference, the own, our own lens through which we are reading this hadith. What I, what I appreciate from Najmuddin al-Ghazi is that when reading this hadith, he draws on another hadith to yeah. think about its meaning. And this hadith is a famous hadith uh, of the Prophet, another famous hadith, al-maru ma'amanahab, a person belongs with the one she or he loves, or people belong with the ones they love. Just talking about the afterlife, though, the akira, perhaps. Or? Well, that's 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 a question, right? I mean, I, I think um, it's it's both. Right? Uh, 
Right. It certainly can be in the original context of the hadith uh, in which the prophet sort of expresses uh, this idea. A, a an ordinary believer comes to him, someone who is not an overachiever, but an underachieving Muslim comes to him and says, hey, look, I haven't done really much, but um, I love Allah and his messenger. And the prophet responds, you know, al-maru ma'man hab and in different tr translations or different narrations, he responds slightly differently in the second person. But the idea um, in the original hadith is that, yes, your love will translate into a particular rank in the akhirah. But, you know, the, the hadiths of the prophet and it starts uh, laden with meaning and significance, that it can be considered, um, you know, and the Najm al-Din al-Ghazi does as, a, as a, a deep thinker of you know, not only the Islamic tradition, but of the human being. For him, this hadith provides sort of the, the hermeneutical key to helping to understand what this hadith means. In other words, because, yeah. you know, he argues, or at least not only he, but even Plato argues that forms of imitation may not always be sincere. Yeah. So some people, for example, if you imagine someone who, uh, you know, when I was growing up, my younger brother or somebody would play the copycat game. He'd copy everything I do just to annoy me. Not because he really wanted to be, be like me, but because he wanted to annoy me. So if I were, you know, writing with my pen, he'd also be writing with my pen just to get under my skin. In other words, what Najmuddin al-Ghazi and others before him recognized was that forms of imitation have different levels of sincerity behind them. The motivation and intention behind them are different. Um, and this is something that, you know, uh, also resulted in different rulings among the ulama or among the fuqaha for various acts of imitation. What was the intention behind it? So some, for example, argued that if the intention behind an act of imitating, say, a Christian practice or an unbeliever, unbelieving practice was to denigrate Islam or to, uh, or to disgrace Islam, that for some Muslim fuqaha or theologians, that could lead to kufr. That could lead to unbelief because of the intention behind it. So intention really is significant when thinking about imitation. So Najmuddin al-Ghazi, in writing his uh, analysis or his commentary on this tradition, you know, tr brings this up. So then he's, uh, so then he wonders, well, how can we really distinguish and differentiate this sincere or true form of imitation from these more superficial, surface-level forms of imitation? And so, for him, the key uh, hermeneutical device, or at least tradition, for helping to understand this is this tradition, al maru ma'manahab, and this is what. Uh, true, true imitation for him and true belonging then is determined by love, determined by affection. Mm. So if one wants to really know where, you know, who, what community you belong to, one looks into one's heart and, mm. and, and detects what, uh, what is, where does my affection lie? Who mm. do I have affection for? Um, and this is a profound, uh, you know, a profound way of reading the hadith of Mantashabbaha Bikomen for Women Home. And it indicates a level of subtlety um, in the thinking of Najmuddin al Ghazi uh, that I think is, is relevant for Muslims today. Um, and also helps us to think about the hadith in not merely sort of black and white terms, but to realize that what really is at stake is the 
the hum in the hadith, right? Hum in Arabic means them. Who is it that, what is the moral, as it were, status of the hum, of the them? Uh, that is what is truly important. And, and thinking that through in terms of understanding what this hadith means for me as a believer, for me as a Muslim uh, today. So in other words, it's not merely a warning of the Prophet, salam, but it can also be um, an exhortation uh, to emulate, uh, you know, for tashabbu, as it were, for imitation to be something positive, to be something good, depending on whom we are emulating and whom we're choosing to emulate, whether Muslim or arguably non-Muslim. I think that's a question for Muslims to debate among, among another, is emulating Jews and Christians in, intrinsically bad? Uh, or can there be forms and moments, um, sorry, of can there be forms and moments when imitating certain Jews and certain Christians and certain times and certain places be something that actually makes me a better Muslim? Is that possible? Uh, these are the kinds of difficult questions, challenging questions that Muslims today, especially living in the West among non-Muslim minority, uh, majority, uh, can ask themselves. And I think Najbuddin al-Ghazi opens up that discursive space for us to do that, and which is one of, one of the reasons why I think his book uh, is relevant and important and doesn't get the intention that it deserves, at least with regard to uh, this subject matter. Okay. Some you know, final questions. Is Muslim identity intrinsically oppositional? Does being authentically Muslim mean opposing mainstream American and British culture? These are uh, challenging questions uh, you know, for us to kind of reflect on, to think about, um, and that I think the, 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 the subject, the doctrine of Tashabu, and hopefully my book can help us to kind of answer. Um, and I propose some of my own ideas in the book, um, but you know, the conversation uh, I think should, inshallah, God willing, uh, continue. Okay, wow, that's a uh, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating uh, discussion, actually. Um, and I will, as I said before, I'll put a link in the description below to uh, your book and also your um, academia website. You say there's uh, some essays there that um, might be of interest as well, is that right? Yeah, so some of the articles, for example, on the treatises against imitation for those who are like, I want to see what, um, what are the, you know, all the different books that. Muslim ulama have written about the subject. And then for those who are really interested in the hadith itself, I have a, an article that looks at um, many of the interpretations, um, pre-modern interpretations of this hadith as, as well. Uh, and of course, there's, there's the book. Fantastic. Well, uh, I, I've read, I haven't read all the book. I've, I've read uh, different chapters from the book and I've, I found it very interesting. Uh, a very scholarly I'm not rushing to the conclusions, and you, you don't, uh, you, you, you have a, a perspective, but you're respectful of other opinions, and so I do recommend uh, people uh, benefit from your work. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Yusha Patel, for your time, your expertise, and the uh, and the good way that you presented it. I, I've enjoyed it's been an enjoyable presentation. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, um, uh, Haji Paul, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this subject. It's something that I hope that uh, your viewers will. Um, find uh, interesting and and relevant to their to their um, lives, and uh, you know I always uh, appreciate your insights and and your commentary as well um, on 
subject relating to Islam and religion. So it's a great pleasure and opportunity that you've given me, and I'm very grateful for it. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.